my gosh, thanks, ladies, for those wonderful, wonderful praises. That is awesome. Um, ladies' Day Away was exciting. I agree with you. If you were here, um, you know you want whatever it is she had. I've never seen as much energy in my life as from our uh, amazing speaker on Saturday. She was fabulous, and uh, hopefully... Uh, you'll sign up and come again next year, and it will be just as fabulous. And the India trip reminds me, we've got women that are in Brazil right now on a mission trip. So uh, they'll be back tonight, and so pray for their safe return. I imagine that they're at the airport right now. You know, it's the last week of February. We, When we meet next week, it's going to be March. Now, that's exciting to me. It kind of, you know, makes you think spring is actually coming. And spring break will be here for some of you, for any of you that have school-aged children. So I just want to tell you that we meet during spring break. And the reason for that is is everybody's kiddos go to a different school, and so everybody's spring break is different. So there's no way we could possibly scheduled to be off for spring break. And there are many of us, like myself, that spring break doesn't exist anymore. Life just goes on. I wish I got a spring break. But uh, So we want to be here studying the Word of God. If you um, have spring break with your children... Uh, if you've got school-aged children, uh, we don't have any provision for your school-aged children. I wish that we did, but um, it would be a great opportunity for you to trade off and maybe plan a play date for them with a friend. And come on to Women in the Word because we will be here together studying God's great and gracious words. Last Thursday night before uh, the evening Bible study, Deb Haygood and I were together, and of course we're uh, grandmothers, and so we always talk about our grandkids, and she said, oh my gosh, I have a great story to tell you about Dylan, and Dylan is Deb's three-year-old grandson, and uh, she said that uh, he had been to some sort of little soccer class that her three-year-old goes to, and that when Rachel, his mom, picked him up, she said something about his teacher, and Dylan corrected her, as only a three-year-old can correct you. If you've ever been corrected by a three-year-old, you know how um, intense they are at making sure. And he said, Mom, they're not teachers, they're coaches. And then, with confidence, he said, and I'm the locomotive. Now, Dylan is obviously a Thomas the Train fan, and Thomas the uh, locomotive has all these coaches that have names. So, in um, in Dylan's little short life, any time he heard the word coach, it had to do with the train, and if it had to do with the train, he wanted to be the locomotive. And um, you know, right words, right words from a three-year-old, but. As a three-year-old, he had the wrong meaning. And I think that's going to be a great story. Can't you just picture Dylan playing high school soccer and um, his jersey on the back says locomotive? I mean, I think, uh, I, I think that would be a great story to tell him when he grows up. You know, this week, as Paul con- continues his letter to the Thessalonians, you know, he's not dealing with preschoolers, literal preschoolers in terms of chronological age, but in the sense of spiritual maturity, the Thessalonians are preschoolers. They are very young in their faith. They're new in their knowledge and understanding of the truth. So just like little Dylan, they have the right words 
But when it comes to talking about the end times, they have come to a wrong conclusion about their meaning. And, of course, they've had some help along the way from some false teachers and false prophets. So Paul addresses, right here in chapter 2, Paul addresses their wrong thinking head on. Um, and we're going to talk about this that uh, for the next 40 minutes. He um, gives probably the most descriptive teaching about end times in all of the Bible outside of the book of Revelation. And not only does he give them the truth about end times, and I love this about Paul, he also gives them some other great lessons. He gives them three great lessons in standing firm in the truth that he gives them. Discernment, correction, and of course, faith. So open your Bibles, if you haven't already, to Second Thessalonians, and let's read the first five verses together. Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by some prophecy report or letter supposedly to have come from us, saying that the day of the Lord has already come. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped, so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Don't you remember that when I was with you, I used to tell you these things." Now, if you read those, uh, the series of books left behind, you know in the very first book, uh, there was a very astute pastor who made a videotape and left it behind in his church in case the rapture came, and he was not going to be there to tell those people that he knew were attending every Sunday morning, but they really had never placed their faith in Christ. It was just something to do for some reason. And he made a videotape um, because when the whole church was gone, they were going to want to know where he was on Sunday morning, I'm sure. So they play this videotape and it explains to them exactly what have happened because of their um, uh, unbelief. He says they have missed the rapture and they're entering the beginning uh, period known as the tribulation, which is part of the day of the Lord. You know, the Thessalonians have been subject to some false teaching and they think that's what's happened to them here. They think they have somehow missed the rapture that Paul had told them about, not only when he was with them, but in his first letter, 1 Thessalonians. And they think that that gathering of the church in the air, I assume they think somehow it happened and they weren't a part of it. And now they are in the time of God's judgment on the earth that Paul also told them about called the Day of the Lord. Now, Paul's going to give them facts here, uh, clear through uh, the whole chapter, to correct their error about end times. But in these first five verses, he also gives these young believers a great lesson in discernment. And it was so good, I didn't want to pass it up today. Discernment is defined as keen, selective judgment. And it's going to be a quality that we all need as believers. We all need to have keen, selective judgment as we study the truth and stand firm on the truth. We're going to need it to sort out spiritual truth from what the world says. We're going to need it to sort out spiritual truth from just plain old lies. And if we can't identify the truth because we don't have discernment, we're obviously not going to be able to stand firm in the truth. And he tells them the first thing here that's important in discernment, and that is don't 
panic. Stay calm is what he says. Stay calm. His exact words in verse 1 are, don't become easily unsettled or alarmed by what you're hearing. You know, it, it really is true that it's difficult to have good judgment when you're panicked. I don't know whether you've ever had that experience when you've had a child that's fallen down and has a gash and they're bleeding and you think, what do I do? And um, it's difficult to have good judgment when you're panicked about something. One of Aesop's fables is called The Sky is Falling. You may know it by the name Chicken Little because it's called a variety of different things I discovered. And it's about this chicken that's eating and he's under a tree and an acorn falls and hits him on the head. Well, because he's hit on the head, he panics and he doesn't stop and think what's really happening here. So in his panic, he decides um, that the sky must be falling. And so he sets off um, hysterically and in a panic to tell everyone he meets that the sky is falling. And so the fable, there's a variety of characters that he meets along the way. I can't remember all their names. One of them is named Henny Penny, I know. But anyway, in his hysteria he convinces all of them that the sky is falling and so then there's two of them and then there's three of them and they're going in their panic to tell the world that disaster is coming well eventually they meet a fox and the fox is not panicked by what they are saying and in fact he begins to take advantage of their hysteria and begins to eat them one by one and the moral of this story for us is stay calm discern the truth or you're going to find yourself with a fox that will eventually eat you. And Paul knows that if the Thessalonians don't stay calm in the midst of what's happening, what's circulating in their church, that the fox who's spreading the lies will definitely eat the church. And that's exactly what the enemy wants, isn't it, ladies? He wants us to become so panicked by things that we hear out there um, that we don't stand firm on the truth. And he destroys us, and he destroys the church. Panic over untruth is a great way to make that happen. Now, Paul gives him some more great advice in verse 2 about discernment, where he essentially says, okay, first he said stay calm, and then he says consider the source of your information. He's previously been the source of their information. He's an apostle. He has shared the message of the gospel that he received from the Savior directly with them. And it was because of that that they were saved and the church began. He's been the gold standard of truth in the first century church. And yet in their panic, they're not listening or going back to what Paul has told them. They have an apostle in their midst, and yet they're listening to information from a lot of other sources besides Paul. Paul mentions prophecy here in verse 2 as uh, one of those uh, probable sources. And what he means by that is more than likely someone stood up in one of their gatherings, one of their worship services, and and said, this is what the Lord told me, and began to uh, speak. And and it doesn't line up with what Paul has previously uh, told them. There's also a letter, a report that's circulating that's attributed to Paul, but it also doesn't line up with what he has told them previously. None of these sources can be validated by Paul's teaching to them, the gold standard um, for the message of truth. And these are some of the things that he has told them. It's on your verse sheet. I just, for a little review, I put down there, this is what he had told them in 
1 Thessalonians 1, 9 and 10. They tell us how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. He's told them Jesus is going to rescue them from the day of the Lord. 1 Thessalonians 5, 9 says, For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. So in their panic... They haven't stopped for a moment and considered the source of the information that they are choosing to believe. And if we're going to stand firm in the truth, ladies, we must be discerning about our source of information. And I'm hoping you had a chance to discuss that in your um, small group today because we are definitely in the age of information. We have more information available to us than anyone else in all of time. In fact, I have my... um, phone in my pocket, and if I were to stop right now, I could call up on my cell phone um, all sorts of information, uh, wrong spiritual truth. Um, We must be discerning about the source of our information. Is it from God's Word? Does it line up with God's Word? Can we validate it by God's Word? Or is it from somewhere less reliable? Now, the next thing that we see is in verse 3, and Paul talks about something that can be a stumbling block, and I think it's particularly true for new believers. Those of us that have been around for a while have probably had some experience with this, and that is that there are deceivers out there that want to distort God's truth. That's what they've set out to do, and sometimes it's for their own purpose, and sometimes they are being led by the enemy to distort God's truth. And in our uh, naivety or our busyness or our ignorance, we forget that. We forget that people that are out there speaking have set out with purpose to distort God's truth and to be deceivers. You know, Jesus told them that there would be deceivers. He told... um, the apostles, he told everyone that listened to him. And that even if there are deceivers in the world, it's still not the end times yet. Mark 13, verses 5 through 7 says, Jesus said to them, Watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name, claiming I am him, and will deceive many. When you hear wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen. But the end is still to come. If the Thessalonians are going to stand firm in the new truth uh, of their faith, they're going to have to know that everyone that speaks about spiritual things is not necessarily to be trusted. Liars exist, and they will target their faith and belief system for their own purposes. Now, Vicki's already talked about the Olympics. Um, it, it's so fun to watch it every night. I'm not a TV watcher at night either, but I find myself going home thinking, okay, I wonder what's on the Olympics tonight. And the one thing um, I was amazed at last week were the um, figure skaters and the ice dancers. And not just because um, they're so graceful and they're amazing um, Athletes, But you know what I was amazed at? That they could remember those routines. Does that not amaze you that they can remember every leap and jump and footwork and how to put their hands and um, when to duck their heads so that when their partner comes around, he doesn't slice their um, head off? Um, A memory lapse. A memory lapse in some of those things would be um, critical. It would be critical. And I'm sure, I'm sure that, of course, they're young and that helps, but um, I'm sure you don't see old figure skaters, I think, for that very, that very reason, that very reason. Um, 
I'm sure that they work with their coaches over and over and over and over again to get those routines down. Well, just like a good coach, Paul admonishes the Thessalonians here in verse 5 about their memory lapse. He says to them, don't you remember when I was with you, I used to tell you these things? Paul was actually with his friends in Thessalonica, and he personally taught them about these things. And then, of course, he uh, wrote them a letter where he also taught them about the day of the Lord. And he knew it. He did it because he knew that the future of the church was going to depend on them knowing the truth in the days of persecution that were going to come. Now, can you imagine how frustrated he is right here um, that they are not remembering that truth? Um, you know, it's not that he didn't, he, he went, oops, I forgot to tell them that. It's that he did tell them, and they are not remembering it. And that's going to be critical for all of us. We must do whatever it takes to remember the truth that is taught to us. And I don't know what that takes for you. Sometimes for me, it takes going over a lesson again after I've heard it or um, hearing a sermon that Ted has preached again and thinking, okay, I didn't really grab hold of that. I need to, you know, go through it again. What a waste it is. What a waste it is for the kingdom and for all of us if we sit here today or we sit here on Sunday morning uh, and we forget the truth of God's word that's revealed to us by his spirit, that we don't do what it takes to hold on to it. None of the Olympic skaters that stood on those podiums receiving medals um, would have been there if they hadn't simply remembered their routines. They could have been amazing athletes and practiced for years. But if they didn't remember... They wouldn't have gotten their medal. In order for the Thessalonians and for all of us to stand firm in the truth, we must not take the teaching that we've received lightly. We must seek to remember what we have been taught. The psalmist says this in Psalm 119, verse 93, I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have preserved my life. Now, Paul's admonition to remember what he's already taught them brings up another important point in standing firm in the truth. And that is, we've got to be students of the truth. You know, in verse 5, I've already talked about the fact that Paul was with them personally and personally taught them about the day of the Lord. And that statement to me shows me that Paul did not regard prophecy, which is God's uh, truth about future events, as too deep are too controversial or um, too hard for even new Christians. He was only with them for a short time in Thessalonica, possibly not more than a few weeks. And in that time, he shared with them as much truth as he possibly could, including prophecy about end times. He did it without hesitation or apology. Paul obviously wants them to be students of the truth, um, learning everything that they can, including prophecy, so that they can stand firm in the truth when times get hard. Um, One of the things that uh, all students who are familiar with, if you're a student, if you're a student today or you've been a student in the past, you're familiar with the the, um, idea that if you're a student, at some point in time, you're going to make an error and your teacher is going to correct you. And that's what uh, Paul does here next with the Thessalonians. Uh, He encourages the Thessalonians to stand firm in the truth by correcting their present error. If their doctrinal error 
concerning the rapture and the day of the Lord remains uncorrected. Paul knows that eventually um, the Thessalonians are going to get higher, further and further out there in the high weeds of untruth and distortion. Um, over the past months, you've probably seen these stories too in the news. I read one of them um, on the Internet recently about people who have followed their GPS devices in their cars and have ended up in pretty dire, life-threatening situations. And what happened is their GPS device has errors that had never been corrected, and they had simply followed them um, into some pretty life-threatening situations. And we are going to all end up in some dire spiritual situations if those around us, those who love us, and walk beside us like our friends and maybe our pastors or even our small group leaders or our mentoring partner. Those who walk beside us don't correct the errors that they discover in our understanding of spiritual truth. And there's probably going to be a time when all of us misunderstand truth and uh, need correction. Um, the writer of Proverbs says this in Proverbs 29:15: The rod of correction imparts wisdom. Now, Paul doesn't have a rod here, but he does desire to correct the error uh, in the Thessalonians' thinking. And he does it uh, really between uh, verses 3 and 11. So I want to go ahead and read uh, verses 6 to 11 with you, and then we're going to back up and pick out the truth that he gives them to correct their error. He says, And now you know what is holding him back so that he may be revealed at the proper time. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work, but the one who holds, now holds it back will continue to do so till he is taken away. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. The coming of, lawless, of the lawless one will be in accordance with the work of Satan, displayed in all kinds of counterfeit miracles, signs, and wonders, and in every sort of evil that deceives those who are perishing. They perish because they refuse to love the truth and to be saved. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion, so that they will believe the lie, and so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth, but have delighted in wickedness. So Paul wants to correct his students of the truth, and the first correction that he gives them, or truth that he shares with them that he hopes will correct them, is that the day of the Lord is not going to begin until three things happen. And in these verses, Paul presents them in logical order rather than chronological order of when they're going to happen. So the first thing he says is beginning in verse 3, if you want to look back up there. He says, um, do not let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion. Now, the literal meaning of the word rebellion here in the original language that Paul used is a falling away. And so he means that this is a revolt or a departure or an abandoning of a position that was once held. And Paul is talking about a rebellion within the professing church where there will be a departure from the truth that God has revealed in his word. And another word for this rebellion that you may hear occasionally in Christian circles is apostasy. And that word apostasy actually comes from the Greek word he used here, which I can't pronounce. But... um, Now, apostasy has been part of the church 
almost since its beginning. And in fact, apostasy exists today. Uh, There are mainline liberal churches in America today that deny that the Bible is the inerrant word of God. They think it's just a great collection of stories that give us um, a, a good way to live our life. They deny the virgin birth. They think, oh, that didn't really happen. They deny creation As it's told in Genesis, obviously evolution can be the only choice. These are forms of apostasy because they are a departure from the truth of God revealed in his word. In his word, he tells us that this is the inerrant word of God. In his word, he tells us that Christ was born of a virgin. In his word, he tells us how the word was created. Um, But these apostasies that we see today are not the apostasy that Paul envisions here. When the rapture takes place and all true Christians leave the earth, the apostasy that Paul is talking about, uh, or this rebellion, is going to overrun the human race. And one theologian that I read wrote this. This worldwide anti-God movement will be so universal as to earn itself a special designation. And then he put in capital letters, the apostasy. Some believe that this apostasy will consist more of um, more than people simply turning from God, but will involve people turning to the Antichrist as well and worshiping him. So, the apostasy, this complete falling away within the church has got to happen. The second thing Paul says has to happen is in verses 3, 4, and 8. And that is the unveiling of the man of lawlessness or the Antichrist. Um, and this is a person that is yet to appear. We haven't had an, uh, the Antichrist unveiled um, yet. And he is going to be completely law- lawless. In fact, one of the small group leaders said evil to the core. I think that's a great description. And this is going to be the man that God will doom to everlasting destruction. Daniel speaks of this person in his prophecy and declares that this person, this man of lawlessness, is going to make a covenant with the nation of Israel at the beginning of the seven-year tribulation period because it's going to appear that he is a man of amazing peace and wisdom. And at the beginning of the seven-year tribulation, and then he will break it in the middle at the three-and-a-half-year point. Daniel 9.27 on your sheet says, He will confirm a covenant with many for one-seven, one seven-year period. In the middle of the seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering, and on a wing of the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. And when you read about this event and about the man of lawlessness, uh, most uh, theologians think that it's the breaking of the covenant at the three-and-a-half-year point that will truly truly point, unmask the lawless one for who he is, the opponent of Christ or the Antichrist. And he will eventually seek to make everyone worship him and claim to be God himself. Revelation 13.8 affirms that. All the inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast or the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness, all whose names have not been written in the book of life belonging to the Lamb that was slain from the creation of the world. 
So we have the apostasy. We have the unveiling of the man of lawlessness. And the third event that has to happen that Paul says here in this description is actually in verses 6 and 7. And according to Paul, it is the removal of the restraint of lawlessness. In other words, something is holding back. Although we do have evil in the world, it is not this complete apostasy, this complete evil uh, of lawlessness. So uh, he is apparently, and this I thought this was so interesting, apparently Paul has actually, when he was with the Thessalonians, has actually told them who it was. He's identified the restrainer in person to the Thessalonians, but he doesn't, um, he says, when I was with you, I told you uh, what was restraining. But here in verses 6 and 7, he doesn't um, reveal the identity to us. He just tells us that that's going to happen. Uh, He doesn't restate it. Now, there are all sorts of theories. You may have talked about this in your group about uh, who or what restrains the man of lawlessness, both in Paul's day and in ours. Over the years, there have been a lot of um, suggestions in uh, the first centuries. They thought it was the Roman Empire. But obviously, the Roman Empire has vanished, so that's not the answer. Some um, think that it's Satan that um, restrains Lawlessness, but that doesn't make sense. That's uh, why would Satan uh, restrain lawlessness so God could work in the world? That's not really how Satan works. The most likely choice is the restraining influence in the world that's holding back lawlessness and holding back the day of the Lord is the Holy Spirit Himself. And He accomplishes His ministry of restraining lawlessness in the world, mainly through the influence of Christians, through the influence of all of us who, as believers, are indwelt with the Holy Spirit. So, through Christians, the Holy Spirit works in society to hold back evil in the world. You know, when Paul has already given the Thessalonians a heads up as to how that restrainer is going to be removed from the world if it is the Holy Spirit working in Christians. Um, He did that back in 1 Thessalonians 4 when he talked about the fact that the church is going to be removed from the world. So if all believers are removed from the world, the Holy Spirit that indwells them will also, uh, their influence will be removed. Uh, removed. When the rapture of the church occurs, the Holy Spirit will be taken out of the way because his influence through God's people is going to be removed. Now, after the restraint of the Holy Spirit is removed through the rapture of the church, as you can imagine, the world plunges into lawlessness, and the lawless one is going to have great freedom. He's going to do things that will identify him as the Antichrist. He's going to be empowered by Satan, which is what Paul tells the Thessalonians in verses 8 through 10. He's going to deceive most people into thinking he is God by doing awe-inspiring, powerful miracles that mimic the apostles and Jesus himself. Um, Revelation 13:4 on your verse sheet says, Men worship the dragon because he had given authority to the beast. And they also worship the beast and ask, Who is like the beast? Who can make war against him? Because they have seen his power and everything that he's done. And then Revelation, Revelation 13:7 says, He was given power to make war against the saints and to conquer them. And he was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. That is pretty incredible. The lawless one, the Antichrist, is going to be Satan's instrument. Paul tells us that in verse 9 and 10. And through him, Satan is going to set himself up to receive what Satan's always wanted, and that is to be worshipped 
as God. That's what Satan wanted from the beginning, and that's what he's going to want until the very last day. But the truth of the matter, his success, although it's going to be pretty devastating, it's going to be short-lived because of the amazing thing Paul says here, is that even though we've seen that... um, Satan has given authority to the man of lawlessness over every tribe, every people, every nation. When Christ comes at the second coming, his mere breath and the glory of his coming is going to do away with the man of lawlessness to destroy Satan's tool. Pretty incredible. Paul's final point about the end times to the Thessalonians, so they will not be in error, is made at the end of verse 10 into verses 11 and 12. And that's where he tells us how successful the man of lawlessness is. Although thousands of people are going to place their faith in Christ during the tribulation, after the rapture of church, they weren't saved before. During the tribulation, there will be thousands of people that are saved. That's still only going to be just a minuscule amount of the world's population at that time. The rest of the world, the rest of the world's population is going to be really impressed with Satan's and the man of lawlessness power and signs and wonders and evil. And they're eventually going to perish because they have scorned God's truth willingly, rejected Christ, and willingly worshipped the Antichrist. Their own choice, their own choice to do that brings about their destruction as God lets them reap what they sow, the consequences of their action of choosing the Antichrist. Now, some people are concerned about verse 11 where it talks about God sent this delusion so they would believe believe the lie. And Paul doesn't mean here that the original lie that they believed um, uh, about uh, turning away from God, he doesn't believe that God caused them to make that choice. Their own choice uh, brings about their destruction as God lets them reap the consequence of their actions. In other words, they make that choice and then God lets them follow that choice through his delusion right to the end. I can imagine none of them ever look up because of that delusion as they're worshiping the Antichrist. None of them ever say, is this right? Is this guy for real? Could this really be happening? No, they're deluded about it right to the end because they made that choice in the beginning and they're going to follow him right off um, the cliff there. Um, And they will perish. Okay, so the question is, why doesn't Paul, instead of going through all of these things about the end time, why doesn't Paul just tell the Thessalonians right up front, hey guys, you've got it wrong. Remember what I told you about the rapture. It hasn't happened yet. That's not where you are. You're not in the middle of the tribulation following the rapture. You're back in the church age. Um, That would have been simpler. That probably would have been simpler and easier to understand. But I believe that he did it this way because he wants to re-emphasize for them uh, the order and the nature of the events um, that will culminate in the destruction of lawlessness and evil. They have experienced lawlessness and evil in their persecution. They want to understand it and understand what's going on here. So I think that Paul is, wants them to be confident, wants them to be confident that even though they are experiencing a form of lawlessness and evil in their lives, it's not 
It's not the lawlessness and evil that's going to come after the rapture of the church. He wants to truly set the record straight with them. Now, in the first century, it was often held that if a man had to look something up in a book, he didn't really know it. In fact, in Paul's day, you were only a true scholar um, if you had committed to memory the things that you had learned. Um, So in light of that, I want us to be true scholars today. So turn over your verse sheet. Turn over your verse sheet. And we're going to take this test together. Take this test together, and I'm going to give you the answers. We're going to, I want you all to shot them out, and then we're going to validate them. And I don't want anyone to break out in a sweat here about, oh, my gosh, they gave me a test at the women's Bible study today. Okay, so the first thing we're going to answer is, what is the rapture of the church? Someone shout out whether it's A, B, C, D, or F. It's E. The rapture of the church is E. It's the gathering of the believers in the air to meet Jesus prior to the day of the Lord. So put an E right there in rapture of the church. Okay, so what's the tribulation? It's A. It's A. It's the seven-year period between Jesus coming for the church of the rapture and Jesus coming with the church at the uh, second coming when he comes back to set up the millennial kingdom. So what's the day of the Lord? It's B. And I gave you a long explanation here. Um, It's that future period of time when God is going to be Uh, directly and dramatically at work in the world. And he's going to pour out judgments, which is what we've been talking about, his wrath. But in the day of the Lord, there's also going to be blessings because it includes the millennial kingdom, which is going to be blessings. And it begins after the rapture of the church, and it includes the tribulation, the second coming, the millennial kingdom, and the great white throne judgment. That is the day of the Lord. Okay, what's next? Okay, so what, um, what must happen before the judgments of the day of the Lord? We just talked about it. It's F. We have to have the apostasy, the unveiling of the man of lawlessness, and removal of the restrainer from the world. Okay, and your final question, I think you're going to get 100. Um, your final question is, what error is Paul correcting with the truth in Second Thessalonians 2? It's D. It's D. The error that he is correcting is that the rapture of the church had already happened and they were in the day of the Lord. Douglas, are you up there? Will you put this chart on the screen for me? Okay. The first one is the Thessalonians' false idea. They thought that they had the church age had ended The rapture had occurred, and they were right there in the tribulation, waiting for Jesus' second coming so that the millennial kingdom can start. And Paul corrects their error with all of this additional truth by saying to them, no, 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 you're here. You're in the church age. What's yet to come is the rapture, the restrainer removed, the apostasy, the antichrist revealed, and then we have the second coming Um, The Antichrist destroyed the millennial kingdom. A couple of weeks ago when Deb taught, she gave you a a chart that's a chronology of Revelation. And I wanted to make sure you had it again. So just put this in your notes. It's on the back of your outline. I told you we were going to be students today. 
Okay, so I think everyone did make a hundred. I, I have to tell you, I went through this about three times because I was afraid I would give you the wrong answer when I was up here. You know, last thing I did before I came up here was review my A, B, C's, and D. Okay, so let's finish up real quickly. We're almost done. I just have another minute. Let me read um, verses 13 through 17 real quickly. But we ought always to thank God for you, brothers, loved by the Lord, because from the beginning God chose you to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. He called you to this through our gospel, that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the teachings we passed on to you, whether by word of mouth or by letter. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and by his grace give us eternal encouragement and good hope. Encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed. You know, in verse 15, Paul actually verbalizes. He's been talking about it. um, uh, uh, That's been his hope is that they would stand firm in the truth. But now he verbalizes it, that they would stand firm in the truth. But what I love about it is that he put bookends on that verse right here um, about his statement as his final encouragement to his friends. He has written to correct them. He has written to get them back on track. But he doesn't beat them up here. Instead, he shares with them that standing firm in the truth is never about being perfect. It's always about faith in a perfect God. Faith in a God who has called them. It is God that has called them to the truth. Faith in a God who has chosen them. It is God who has chosen them. And faith in a God who will love, who will by love and grace encourage them and strengthen their hearts, according to verses 16 and 17. You know, just like you and I, the Thessalonians are never going to be perfect in their faith. But with a faith and a perfect God, you and I and the Thessalonians can all stand firm in the truth. Pray with me. Father, that is what we want to do. We want to stand firm in the truth through our faith in you. And Father, I want us to be women that are discerning that we do the things that Paul has taught us to do here and that we take correction, no matter um, uh, whether it's from a friend or from a pastor. If we're wrong in the truth, Lord, I pray that you would bring someone to us that would correct us. Thank you so much for your word. Thank you for um, allowing us to study the future that you hold in your hand. And I pray that your hand of blessing would be on these ladies today. I pray this in the name of your Son, our Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks, ladies.